This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. From the first day of medical school, students are taught to look at patients as a compendium of body parts and money. That was the case, at least, for Dr. Abraham Nussbaum, who's a psychiatrist at Denver Health. He says doctors specialize in how to treat a knee or a heart and get paid for those treatments, but aren't taught to see the whole person. This approach isn't good for physicians or patients, according to Nussbaum, whose new book is called The Finest Traditions of My Calling, One Physician's Search for the Renewal of Medicine. And uh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. There's a pretty bleak picture you paint there of the profession. Uh, What do you think about medicine needs renewing? Medicine is in a little bit of a dire straits. It's a time when physicians are increasingly feeling burnt out. Rates of depression are high among physicians. A majority of physicians would recommend to a young person not to enter the profession of medicine. You talk about higher rates of depression among physicians, higher, I suppose, than in the past, in history. Well, yes. And ironically, for most people, the more schooling they get, the better off their mental health, right? Physicians are the only thing that with you get an advanced degree, you actually have increased rates of depression and burnout. It's especially high among female physicians. And what does this mean for the patient experience? When physicians feel burnt out, we know that they're less likely to spend time with patients, right? The physician is short, terse, curt with them, doesn't spend time thinking through the problems with them. They focus on doing something to them rather than helping them make a big change in their life. You write that hospitals were intended to help people get better, but that's not what they're necessarily incentivized to do now. How so? So hospitals in some ways have become like public schools. Their job is to meet the test, right? For hospitals, that's quality metrics, but not necessarily to help somebody get somebody better. And those metrics could be any number of things. For instance, how often a patient has to be readmitted to that hospital. Sure. So in my life, working on an adult inpatient psychiatry service, the metrics that the government sets for assessing whether or not we've done a good job are things like, did we do a standardized screen of your trauma history or alcohol abuse? It doesn't ask the question, did I help somebody who was previously suicidal feel a renewed sense of hope? Are they no longer going to be suicidal? Or did I take someone who was feeling psychotic and help them feel more in touch with reality and more in touch with the people they know and love? So what we're really assessed on in some ways is, am I keeping track of the documentation? There's questions that you'd like doctors to ask and, and I suppose be measured by. Um, they're more, you know, qualitative. Isn't there just inherently more difficulty in judging the healthcare system by, by those sorts of questions? Fundamentally, the question is, are people collection of data points or are most people live in the world qualitatively? So, yes, I can ask you a series of standardized questions about suicide, about alcohol, or about your physical health and well-being. At the end of the day, that's probably not what you need from a physician. Why should you put up with all of the bother of becoming a patient, of, of wearing the gowns, of driving to hospitals, parking them, paying the extraordinary fees there? I think that the only justification for that is it's something that you couldn't achieve on your own. What physicians are, and other healthcare professionals, the, the distinct thing they ought to be able to have is to engage the whole person, not just your response to some survey questions. So you could design systems that do that. We choose not to because it seems hard to us, but that's largely because of that's the world we live in. We live in a world where we like to have standardized outcomes. We see this in public schools where they're asked to follow sort of how well a student performs on the test rather than asking, did you take a kid who otherwise wouldn't have been interested in English literature and help them fall in love with a novel? I would say the same is happening in hospitals. We're asking physicians to say, did you prescribe a person these set of medications for this condition? 
even if what they really needed was to not be diagnosed with that condition in the first place and to receive other kinds of encouragement. In physical health, it means that physicians are often encouraged to provide certain medicines when instead they should teach somebody exercise and, and a healthy eating patterns. You write, if physicians can profitably perform a medical intervention for the patients in their zip code, they seem to do so irrespective of the medical necessity of the intervention. Can you give me an example of a medical treatment that is overused and I suppose is, is thus a reflection of the physician not really engaging or listening to the patient? Oh, my goodness. There's a remarkable number of those. We tend to know that when there are specialists in an area, it's the old cliche. When you have a hammer, everything Everything's seems like a nail, a nail yeah. right? So, for example, knee replacements hip replacements. Um, in my life, the use of uh, an what are medications that are called antipsychotics for non-psychotic conditions, right? For treating the elderly with dementia. There are so many treatments in medicine that probably don't need to be used that are because they're available to us and because we have a cognitive bias towards doing something to someone rather than engaging them as a person. And you think that changing the conversation between physician and patient might change those numbers? I think it might. I think the first thing is to actually have a conversation. One of the problems we have today is that we think that people can achieve health if they have a relationship with a system, this institution. I think there's a, still a tremendous advantage to having somebody who knows you and follows you over time. I suppose this is the fundamental idea behind a medical home, uh, this notion of, of getting into the healthcare system, perhaps with insurance, if you're newly insured and finding someone who knows you, who, be, who gets to know you. Yeah, I think if you're going to consent to receive care from a medical system or a physician, I think you should hold out for somebody who's going to develop a relationship with you. The medical home is one of many innovations that are being piloted in medicine today that shows some promise. But this idea of, of interventions and that, you know, if you're a hammer, everything you see is a nail. What is driving that? Is it that the doctor makes money on that given procedure is it that that's the only procedure they know to do because they're a specialist? Or might it be that the patient is asking for that procedure? Let's remember that this is a two-way street and that patients demand care. You're right. It is a two-way street. And in some ways, the street itself is set by modern medicine and by advertising. We're one of the only countries in the world that allow direct-to-consumer advertising. It encourages people. Even in the Super Bowl, they were selling uh, opioid-induced constipation pills, right? Which presumes first that you had pain, then that you got prescribed an opioid, then that you have opioid-induced constipation. You create the problem and fill the need for it. So sure, part of it's medical training that physicians are taught to think in terms of parts mm -hmm. that they intervene in. Part of it's that we encourage patients to seek those kinds of fixes. If you think about modern medicine, a lot of it's built around the idea of trauma medicine and infectious disease. They heal you after you've had a ruptured appendix, or they um, save your life after you have acute pneumonia. Those things are terrific wonders. But the problem is, is that much of medicine today isn't about those acute conditions. It's about these chronic conditions. And one of the cognitive traps of medicine is that we wind up sort of going to a physician for these chronic conditions instead of thinking, are there ways outside of medicine to work on improving those health conditions? Likewise. Well, so for example, one of the biggest things we know is, is that if you decide to bike to work, right, I have a colleague who bikes to work every day, and he'll tell you that somebody's health outcomes are tremendously better simply by biking to work, walking every day, eating appropriately. The, the initiatives to reduce things like sugar-sweetened beverages, to reduce tobacco smoking, are tremendously helpful. And yet I can imagine a patient coming in 
and uh, being told that, why don't you bike to work? And thinking, this is what I paid a $70 copay for? Give me something. Do you know what I mean? That's fair. And I think that we fall into the trap of thinking that giving somebody something means medicine. Part of what I want physicians to think about is that you can give yourself the gift of your own time and your attention. You bring up a physician's time. And I want to have you read from the book. This is a description of your first year of medical school. You did a short apprenticeship in rural North Carolina. And you write about visiting patients with the physician. So we began, and I followed his rhythm. I would go in first, fumbling through the patient's history and exam for a few minutes. Then the physician would enter while knocking, striding from the door to the patient's back and placing his stethoscope under the shirt without invitation. Take a deep breath. Good. And again. While he lifted his stethoscope off the chest, he would advise more meds or a new med as he marked a billing code on the patient's chart. With these codes, he monetized every minute of his day. He later told me that if he spent 10 minutes with a return patient, he generated a profit. If he spent 12 minutes, he broke even. If he spent 14 minutes, he lost money. His profits depended on efficiently moving patients through the clinic. He monetized every minute of his day. In that culture, how do you create the environment you've been describing? It's much easier to say, are you a smoker or not a smoker, than tell me about your life, you know. One of the things physicians have an opportunity, like everyone else, is to tinker with their day to kind of move and manipulate systems in order to spend a little more time with somebody when they can. And with that time to learn how to use it well. Can you give me examples in in your own practice or that you've seen from other doctors? Yeah, sure. I think one of the things that impresses me most is about physicians who learn to quickly engage somebody. There's these studies that show that a physician stands while encountering a patient or sits, even if they spend equal amounts of time, the patient perceives somebody who sits with them as spending more time. Learning how to quickly run an interview in a way that's still patient-centered. What does that sound like? One of the best ways to do is to ask somebody what they like to be called, to look them in the eye, to sit with them, to be prepared before you enter a room with a patient, to know something about them, to keep track of those things over time. And that, I suppose, is a way of more quickly drawing a patient out and getting to the sort of marrow of their problem. Is that what you're saying? That would be my argument. And instead, a lot of what's happening is that healthcare encounters are becoming scripted. People are being asked to fill out a series of standardized forms instead of saying something very simple like, what do you like to be called? A couple years ago, um, somebody convinced me that instead of engaging small girls by talking how pretty they look today, you might instead ask them, what are you reading? Those kinds of questions have different assumptions about the people we relate to. To what extent does the Affordable Care Act play into this? So you've talked a lot about standardized forms and measuring outcomes. Is the ACA moving the country in the direction you'd like it to uh, in terms of that patient-physician relationship or away from it? The Affordable Care Act is a very long, large document with many effects. As a physician working at a safety net hospital, I'm thrilled that it's increased access for people who previously didn't have access to care. That idea of a medical home, perhaps. Sure, and this tremendous expansion of Medicaid that our state has undertaken. What worries me about the ACA and the larger social and policy trends that it's sort of the culmination of is that it's really pushing towards population health and outcomes-based health rather than towards this more personal encounter. And yet outcomes-based health is important. Uh, You want to measure a hospital by whether or not it is successful at a given procedure, right? It's absolutely right. And there's a balance between those things. But today we've decided healthcare should be run like a fast dining restaurant where everybody gets the same meal and all the food is standardized. 
The problem with that is that that's not really where most people need to be. So it's not either or. It's not outcome-based or, you know, the world you're painting. It's something that integrates both in your mind. Absolutely. I think you need evidence-based and outcome-based care, but it needs to be person-centered. It needs to be focused on developing relationships between patients and physicians. And part of why I wrote the book is for people to see that it's not just about what affects patients. It's also this question of how it affects physicians. My guest is Dr. Abraham Nussbaum, psychiatrist at Denver Health and assistant professor at the CU School of Medicine. He calls for a renewal of medicine in his new book titled The Finest Traditions of My Calling. When we come back, what a corpse taught him about the anatomy of his profession. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Dr. Abraham Nussbaum of Denver Health calls for a renewal of medicine in his new book because he writes the current system doesn't serve patients or physicians very well. You describe your experience um, dissecting a corpse. This is on your second day of medical school, and um, you say that it was quite unpleasant, by the way. What did that experience teach you about the profession you were getting into? One of the things that was interesting to me is that at the same time I began medical school, my sister was beginning nursing school. And she talked about how the first day of nursing school, she learned how to make a bed. She learned how to provide care for somebody. And for us, the beginning was to walk upstairs, zip down a bag, take off these damp formaldehyde towels, and begin by dissecting a body down the back. It took months before we looked at the face. And it was a powerful, a really powerful introduction into what it means to be a physician in that we are allowed, society grants us the ability to perform things that in other contexts would be assaultive, right, to open a grandfather's back. But it also encouraged us to think about the body in terms of parts. It encourages us to think about ourselves as people who disassembled the body. Dissecting a corpse is a terrific way to learn the body and how it really works. It's, it's really one of the fundamental things that pushes medicine forward. But for example, today, in some of those medical schools, they'd ask you to meet the family that dedicated the corpse. You'd learn something about the person. You'd have an engagement with them as more than just a a husk. You wish you'd have had that experience. I do. Can I ask about your own uh, perception, I suppose, of parts? So you're a, a psychiatrist. Do you, I mean, have you found yourself thinking of the brain as a series of parts and remind, having to remind yourself, gosh, this is, this is more than just the brain. It is one of the challenges of being a physician, whatever your specialty, is that sometimes you get excited about pathology and you have to remember that it's occurring for the person and that it's horrible that they're experiencing this pathology. Okay, what's an example? So recently I had a patient who was experiencing what we called pseudosiesis, which is a delusional pregnancy. And we started talking to her about the fact that we had done a series of pregnancy tests and physical exams, and there was no indication that she was pregnant. And so we started asking her, why did you believe that you were pregnant? And she began discussing the fact that she was lactating, which is an unusual sign of pregnancy. And so we talked about that some more. And we were able to associate a medication that she'd received with its blockade of uh, the pituitary gland um, with what had caused her to lactate. So we were able to figure out that part of what was feeding into her delusion was a medication she'd been given which caused her to lactate. But I can imagine your reaction being, oh, goodness, what a a unique symptom, and then reminding yourself, my goodness, what that must be for her. But that, too, takes time. In other words, the time to get from the aha moment to the, oh, gosh, what does that mean emotionally for this patient? Yeah. One of the things that you learn in medicine is just like any other job is that you start to recognize patterns, and you, you become 
accustomed to the way that people fall apart and the way they break. And you have to still um, recognize that even though it's common for you to experience that, it's unique for the person. And you have to engage it afresh for them. We've talked a lot about doctors, but of course, so many of those who deliver health care are nurses and nurse practitioners. Do you think that there are largely the same pitfalls for other healthcare workers in an office, in a hospital? Each of those professions have different uh, pressures, social, regulatory, and financial. However, they largely fall under the same rules of the Affordable Care Act, Medicare, large insurers govern all of us. But there are unique and special things of each discipline. You mentioned insurers. You know, there are obviously various codes that doctors have to register so that the insurance company knows, you know, what was charged and what to pay. How does insurance have to change and how does coding have to change to reflect the relationship that you're describing, which again is far more qualitative than quantitative? Boy, I'm not sure I'm necessarily qualified to answer that question. It's it's a great question. It would be terrific, although it requires more imagination than I've given thought to, (laughs) to figure out a world that it wasn't just about counting things but seeing someone. Does your own hospital, Denver Health, seem open to what you're talking about? Are you able to effectuate any of this change in your own backyard? I am. I love practicing at Denver Health because we're able to structure a physician's time so they spend more time with patients who need it more and are able to build relationships to work with a patient over time. So you're given that flexibility in the day. We are. Is there a time in medicine that you long for? Um, A time when you think it struck the perfect balance between sort of science and emotion, I guess? Because you do call this a renewal so there, there must be something in the past that you think is worth bringing back. Yeah. One of the things that uh, the book takes its title from is the Hippocratic Oath, right? The finest and the last line of the Hippocratic Oath concludes that you'll always seek the finest traditions of my calling and to experience the joy of healing. And that focus on experience and joy are things that I do think we need to return to medicine, that a physician could in, could could really enjoy the experience of caring for the ill and feel joy in it. And this goes back to this notion that surveys show doctors would not uh, largely recommend their profession to those who are thinking about it, and that doctors are a pretty depressed bunch. When you look around at Denver Health, do you see that depression among physicians reflected every day? And you even write about suicide among physicians. Is that something that you witness firsthand? Absolutely. Uh, I think practicing medicine at a public hospital can be challenging, particularly in the constant changes of the contemporary reform environment. And I have known uh, many physicians who uh, feel burnt out or feel discouraged by the work. But I'm also encouraged by the people who manage to endure and survive. Most importantly, it helps to have it be at a place where people want to encourage you. Your hospital, Denver Health, has had a lot of high-profile departures recently. Uh, The heads of medicine, surgery, ophthalmology, and oral surgery all left, along with three of the five neurosurgeons at the hospital. Uh, Some have taken other jobs, and so it doesn't seem like a burnout. But the Denver Post reported some staff are concerned Denver Health is placing a growing emphasis on making money. What do you think is going on? I think Denver Health, like many institutions, is trying to figure out exactly where it fits in this constantly changing healthcare environment. 
we had a change in some senior leadership in the last five years, and we are trying to figure out how to be responsible and respond to the demands of society. Um, and along the way, we've struggled a little bit. Do you think that there's a greater emphasis on the bottom line these days? I think that's true throughout healthcare. Part of it's that um, at the same time that these changes are occurring, uh, the financing models are changing and how we get paid and, and how we stay open is a challenge. Do you feel that in your own practice at Denver Health, that pressure? It's been a part from the very beginning of my medical training, this question about the bottom line. And is it uh, more pronounced now? I would say so, yes. You write that physicians carry too much responsibility for a person's health and that in the end, the renewal of medicine can happen when patients learn to place their hope elsewhere. What do you mean? So I think people should find a physician that they can trust, somebody who's reliable and provides reasonable care. But they have to recognize that that person, while a physician is still a person, sometimes people think of physicians almost like gods, which is such a mistake. We're the furthest thing from it. To me, that next step of thinking of a physician almost like a god is that move towards hoping in the physician, a patient hoping that the physician can do something that ultimately they can't, forestall death, fix something that can't truly be fixed. One of the things we need to do is, is redraw that boundary between trusting, which I think is reasonable for a good physician, and hoping, which I think is unreasonable. One example I think of today is something like the hospice movement, that in an older model from 20, 30 years ago, people would die in the hospital. And that's an example of trusting and hoping in medicine, that somehow it would forestall death. One of the great things about the hospice movement is it says physicians and other healthcare professionals can provide you care, but they're also going to say that towards the end of life, there's really not much more we can do except give you time to be with your family and friends and the communities that can provide you hope. Have you found that you're guilty of that in your own life when you talk to your doctor? Uh, I think I am very fortunate that I don't go to the doctor very much. Um, I would tell you that w during times in my life when I have gone to physicians, um, which were chiefly when I was younger or when my wife delivered her baby, there was a sense of that, of having to um, hope for things that really can't be hoped for. Uh, and I think part of what is the lesson of life is, is learning what it means to be embodied and to be ill and to suffer. Uh, learning to, the distinction between trust and hope is something I have to learn myself as a person. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. Abraham Nussbaum is a psychiatrist at Denver Health and teaches at the CU School of Medicine. His new book is titled The Finest Traditions of My Calling, One Physician's Search for the Renewal of Medicine. Read an excerpt at cprnews.org. We want your thoughts about his premise. If you're a patient, and especially if you're a healthcare provider, does it line up with your own experience? Comment on our Facebook page, CPR News, or at the bottom of this particular article at cprnews.org. And we'll be right back. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Building satellites has become child's play. The first ever satellite built by elementary school students is aboard the International Space Station now and will be sent into orbit as early as next week. It's called a CubeSat. It's small, lightweight, and others will be released from the space station soon, including one that grad students at the University of Colorado built. For more on this, let's chat via Skype with astronomer Doug Duncan. He leads the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder and joins us monthly to talk about space science. And a welcome back to the program, Doug. Hello, Ryan. Nice to be back. Just how small are these mini satellites, these CubeSats? Oh, they're remarkably small and terribly 
cute. They're about the size of a grapefruit. Okay. And they have a maximum weight of about three pounds. But as I think all of our listeners know, technology, especially electronic technology, has been getting smaller and smaller. For instance, my cell phone has as much memory as the sorry, a million times the memory, I've mentioned this before, of the Hubble Space Telescope. So you can pack a lot into a very small package nowadays, four inches cubed and three pounds. And do they have uh, a reliable source of power that means they can be in orbit for some time? Uh, Most of them have solar cells, just like uh, you're used to on a bigger satellite. The only difference is the solar cell panel is about the size of my open hand, and they have batteries. And so they really have a, a, a similar system to a bigger satellite, yes. And even those solar panels are probably cute. Can they survive in, in space then for very long? Uh, it's impressive. Uh, the CubeSats, uh, most of them uh, have survived for a year or sometimes several years. So yes. What tends to knock them out of orbit? Uh, is it just that their power source is, is um, well, I suppose that's the sun, so that, that doesn't exactly die. Well, you know, the thing that usually goes uh, on big satellites and small are your rechargeable batteries. Kind of like on your cell phone, you can charge it and recharge it and recharge it, but after a couple of years, it doesn't, it's not so efficient. And so batteries are, are often the limitation. Another thing that's kind of interesting to think of If solar panels are going to work, the satellite has to point them toward the sun. And that means that little satellites have to control their orientation, just like big satellites do. So packed into that little four-inch cube are usually some things called magnetic torquers, which are basically coils of wire. And when you run electricity through them, you get a magnetic field. And if you take, say, two bar magnets in your two hands and you approach each other, you can feel them pushing each other around. And so if the satellite makes a little magnetic field up in the satellite, it actually couples to the Earth's magnetic field and slowly pushes the satellite around and keeps it oriented solar panels toward the sun. As we said, there are three of these CubeSats on the International Space Station right now, one from CU, one from a grade school in Virginia, and one from the University of Michigan. And I understand that this technology was actually developed to be educational. Is that right? Uh, It was, and it's very interesting to follow how this has gone. It's gone in two directions. One, it's actually gone from purely educational to more commercial, and maybe we'll get to that in a minute. Mm. But it's also become broader educationally. It, It was invented out in California by two universities, Cal Poly and Stanford, who wanted to give their graduate students a chance to practice on real satellites. And, you know, I think that's it's fun to do this, but it's really important career-wise. Almost all of our listeners know, I hope, that classes in a university, no matter how good, are usually a pale uh, comparison to an actual career. So you can read about satellites, you can look at parts, but to actually build a satellite, You know, to solder the parts, to put in the battery, to put in the solar panels, to put in the detectors, whatever the satellite's going to do. And then to make it work uh, is a whole different level of preparation. And actually, most people find it much more fun and instructive to build a satellite than to be in a classroom. Now, lest you think that 
these go for the price of a set of Legos. Um, I think they're about fifty thousand dollars a piece. So they're they're they may be child's play in some regards and not others. I I suppose. Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, to, if you actually want to get your satellite into space, depending on what you put in it, uh, it could be fifty or a hundred thousand dollars. Which I'll remind people is pretty cheap for getting a satellite into space, right? One of the tricks is once you've built it, you know, how do you get it to space? Do you have a tiny rocket? No, you don't do that. You hitchhike. You take uh, any of the launches that launch large satellites, and there's almost always, you know, four inches of space here and some space here, hmm. and you basically hitchhike. Okay. And, <laughs> and so, you know, for instance, somebody's going up to the International Space Station. They might take two or three of these CubeSats with them. And the space station actually has a launcher in it. It's uh, for those old enough to remember what a Pez dispenser is. Uh, that was a little spring-loaded dispenser of candy, and you opened the front, and out popped um, a candy. And the space station has something equivalent, where out pops a CubeSat and just kind of pops it into orbit uh, from the International Space Station. You mentioned that these are not just for educational use, but that uh, they have a for-profit attribute to them as well. Tell us what CubeSats are measuring or doing for us way up there. Sure. Well, the most uh, interesting aspect uh, or the most interesting application that I've seen, well, two, okay. I come from the University of Colorado. I was just talking to one of our graduate students, Chris Moore, and he has been working for his whole PhD project, um, inventing a telescope about eight inches long, he and a team, um, which is going to look at the sun. And it's an X-ray telescope. Um, and there are a few big X-ray telescopes, but this one is going to constantly look at our sun. And uh, you don't need a big telescope to see the sun, but you need to be in space because X-rays don't make it to the ground. And when the sun has an eruption, a flare, there's X-rays, there's particles that shoot toward the Earth sometimes and affect our communication. So we really want to keep track of the sun. And so this is a perfect PhD kind of project. But the one that I think is the future, yeah. uh, there's a private company called Blue Canyon Technologies in Boulder and another company, you can look them up, interesting website called Planet IQ. And these satellites are so inexpensive, they're going to launch a fleet of them. And they're all going to be weather satellites. Hmm. But instead of doing, you know, the whole country, they're going to zoom in on different neighborhoods. And so what they're promising, and they haven't delivered it yet, but what they're promising is that you'll be able to subscribe for individualized weather, temperatures and storms coming and whatnot. And so what used to be an educational kind of project has spun off into a startup company that has a new business, personalized weather. Huh. Is it possible that I'd ever get a TV signal by a CubeSat? You know, I think of satellites that uh, so often connect us to, to media. Well, that's a, that's a very interesting point. Uh, I'm not sure about TV, but I could imagine some other kinds of personalized communication. Uh, you know, even now... If you're in a remote location uh, and you really need to connect, it's by satellite. Yeah. You know, that's the only way to do it. When I take people up to see the Northern Lights, for the first 15 years I did it, we were totally out of communication for a week. And now, if you really need to, you can use a satellite and talk to somebody back home. So I think personalized communications from orbit, 
that's in the future. Mm. You know, if I may jump back just to the educational uh, aspect of these uh, satellites for a minute, uh, you can get a much cheaper version of a CubeSat that isn't space-worthy, so to speak. <laughs> so, so, so right from the start, it's designed to let you work with it and solder and put little detectors on it, uh, but not to go to space. And it's much, much cheaper. And there are two companies, Arduino and SparkFun, and probably a lot of our listeners either know about SparkFun or have kids right now playing with SparkFun. And if you don't, you should get it for your kids because it's totally cool. And you can build either at home or at school um, basically little robots, right? After all, a satellite is a robot and it, and, and it orients itself. And so you could build a car that you can drive around. You start out with simpler projects. If you need to control things, I saw one kit which has red and green and orange LEDs and you pretend it's a traffic light and you learn how to control a traffic light. So I think it's really inspiring when kids get to um, follow what a lot of people call the maker movement. You know, it used to be, I'm old enough to remember uh, going in a garage, you work on an engine or a carburetor or something, and I don't think as many kids do that, but there's a new movement starting up that kids are building robots. Killed kids are building things which are very much like the satellites that go into space. And in a couple of cases, um, there have been sponsors, whether it's NASA or the National Science Foundation or a company um, that have funded them to actually go into space. That would be pretty awesome, right? You're, a, you're, you're in an ordinary school class and building something headed for space. And you mentioned uh, SparkFun earlier, which I think is a Colorado-based company, I think in Niwot. Uh, Doug, thanks it's so much. right here. Right here in Niwot. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, thanks everybody so much. listening thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> Okay. Uh, that is Doug Duncan joining us via Skype and the lovely communication delay that sometimes can happen, even with satellites. Many ones, too, I suppose. He's the director of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder and joins us monthly to talk about space science. Still to come, arts and crafts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The old adage, the pen is mightier than the sword, inspires Denver artist Ravi Zupa. But instead of swords, his sculptures look like guns. There's a new show of Zupa's work, and as CPR arts reporter Corey Jones explains, Zupa's gun sculptures draw different reactions. Ravi Zupa meets me at his studio with a package. I wrapped it in paper just because it's, you know, I don't want to get shot by the police as I walk home. Because why? Why would they shoot you? Well, because it's a very real-looking firearm. Zupa pulls out a sculpture that mimics a submachine gun from World War II. In fact, someone did call the police in November. They saw art handlers pack up some of Zupa's pieces and thought they were real. Zupa's guns don't shoot, and if you look closely... The main components are typewriter components. So I'll take apart a typewriter and kind of paw through that pile and find pieces that seem appropriate. Typewriter rollers act as the barrels. Zupa turns other antique parts into sights and muzzles. He uses stapler guns for the triggers and the grips on assault rifles and machine guns. The 38-year-old artist doesn't own any guns. He has shot a couple in the mountains, but really, it's something else that guides how he builds his sculptures. The main thrust of all of my art comes from looking at books. He has everything from a gun almanac to books on anatomy and art history on a shelf in his studio. 
He studies them, and they inspire his art. I do genuinely think that words are far more powerful than guns are, both in the kinds of damage that words can do and the, the kinds of positive, you know, improvement that words can do. Zupa's love for books stems from his childhood. He grew up in Littleton, Colorado. His father died before he was born, so his mother raised him and his siblings. She had a fascination with cultures and myths from around the world, and she filled the house with books and art supplies. It was just really comfortable, natural part of life. There was no sort of separation between us and art. As a kid, Zupa drew a lot. First Ninja Turtles, then Knights and Wizards. He says he didn't like high school because he knew what he wanted to be, an artist. So he dropped out and got his GED. At 21, Zupa moved to San Francisco for his first job as an artist. He drew animations for TV commercials. He says it trained him to be precise, but the work offered little variety. Animation is precisely the opposite of that. It's just the simplest, same drawing hundreds of times. It just really wasn't interesting to me. So Zupa quit and moved back to Denver, and he kept drawing things he loved. You know, I'll draw a picture of a Renaissance animal character... And then the next day I want to draw a samurai, and the next day I want to draw something that's native Mexican kind of art. Zupa's interest in different subjects and mediums caught the attention of Tom Horn. He co-owns Black Book Gallery in Denver, where Zupa's art will be on display. He understands that there's different ways to do things, and there's different beliefs, and let's check all of them out. Horn says that includes controversial topics like religion and gun rights. And it's the Mightier Than series, the guns made from typewriter parts, that have drawn the most attention. Some people are shocked. Others are impressed. Buyers include CNN anchor Anderson Cooper and hip-hop artist Swizz Beats. But Horn says Zupa won't be defined by this one series. He'd stop doing that altogether if it was either do these or don't do anything. Inside a Denver industrial building, Ravi Zupa works with welder Bonnie Gregory to build his latest typewriter guns. They try to figure out how to attach scrap metal as a gun magazine. Oh, man. Yeah, just like, you know, pry one side. Gregory says making the sculptures is like putting together puzzles. They're all totally unique. They're total individuals. The sculptures have come a long way since Zupa's first in 2007. They started as pieces of larger installations and props in videos he made. He says he didn't realize their poetic potential until later. In 2013, renowned street artist Shepard Ferry displayed Zupa's work in his Los Angeles gallery. That included a big sculpture resembling the Hindu god Shiva. It had six arms, and one held a gun sculpture. That particular show was sort of an awakening that it could be its own thing and it could stand alone. Zupa's early guns used parts from cars, vacuums, and sewing machines. But with typewriters, he says he can convey a stronger message and play off his love for words. Zupa says he doesn't take a side when it comes to the gun control debate, but he does want to spark conversation and get at the heart of this complex issue. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. And artist Ravi Zupa's latest works are at Black Book Gallery in Denver. You can see photos from his Mightier Than series at cprnews.org. When she was an investment banker, Anne Wheel used to daydream about craft projects. And then in 2010, she started a blog about all things handmade, flaxandtwine.com, and it gained a following. 
And Wheel, who lives in Denver, left her day job. She's also a contributor to Martha Stewart Online, and her first book is called Knitting Without Needles, a stylish introduction to finger and arm knitting. And she's on Skype with us. And welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, indeed. We'll get to this idea of needleless knitting in a moment. But to start, you say you, you grew up doing crafts. Your mom taught you how to knit. And then you had what you call a knitting rebellion as a teen. What happened? Yes. Well, my mom taught me how to knit when I was very young. I think I was about seven. And I uh, fell in love with it immediately. And uh, But after a couple years, I thought, you know, I've got to really make a stand here. And if my mom does it, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so I basically tackled every single craft you can imagine other than knitting, including, you know, cross-stitch and crochet and embroidery, uh, paper crafts, just you name it. I loved it. Anything but what your mother was doing. And that's what, right. <laughs> what brought you back to knitting and in particular knitting without needles? Well, it actually took a while. You know, I went through high school and college and um, actually even started my career before I really started to feel uh, a dearth of creativity in my life. And um, so I rediscovered knitting and absolutely fell in love with it all over again. And became quite a manic knitter, I guess you would say, um, starting then. But when I began my family, I, I found that time started to fade away um, as I was busy with work and family. Uh, and that's really what brought me to start start my blog, Flax and Twine. Mm. Uh, and it, it strikes me that finger and arm knitting might be perfect for kids. And so I wonder if if becoming a parent perhaps led you to that aspect of knitting in particular. Well, it did really. I started my blog, and um, you know, my kids were young then. It, they were five, six, and seven, and uh, I was trying to knit. And I think it was one, it was a snow day. I was trying to knit, and they kept wanting me to play with them. And so I picked up a skein of yarn and started. I said, "Why don't you try this with this?" And I honestly, I couldn't have even told you what I was doing, but I started finger knitting, and I obviously must have learned it when I was very young. Um, and it just came back complete muscle memory. It was amazing. Um, and then I was so excited to teach finger knitting to my kids. And, but after a while they were making so many things, just long, long strands. I said, there's gotta be a way to make some beautiful things out of this finger knitting. And that's what led me to develop these new techniques where you can attach finger knitting to itself rather like crochet and build wide fabrics or, uh, baskets, um, and, and create more things with it, more versatile things with it. Because I think you even have a purse, for instance, in this new book, uh, will you describe briefly how finger and arm knitting works? And is it very hard to learn? Well, it's very easy to learn. And like I said, you know, finger knitting, you teach, you know, four or five-year-olds and they pick it up very easily. Arm knitting, I teach non-knitters all the time how to do it. And young kids learn that very quickly as well. Um, you're basically knitting. Um, knitting is basically a series of loops pulled through one another and that's what you do. You just are using your arms or your fingers to create, to hold those loops and to then pull the yarn through the loops that are on your hand or on your fingers. So you're, so with arm knitting, you're basically using your arms as the needles and pulling that, I call it the working yarn, the yarn that goes to the skeins of yarn. Um, you're basically pulling that working yarn through the loops on your arms or with finger knitting, you are pulling loops uh, through the loops that are on your fingers. 
And in that way, you create a fabric. And yeah, there are, but you can do bags and pillows and poofs and um, scarves and rugs. I mean, there are just so many wonderful things you can make. It sounds so physical and even more physical, perhaps, than knitting with needles. I mean, I'm picturing almost an upper body choreography with arm knitting. Yeah, it's really a wonderful craft where you find um, traditional knitting is more fine motor skills, but arm knitting is more gross motor skills. So it's very proprioceptive. Um, It gives you a lot of great movement feedback and um, very meditative in a different way than traditional knitting, but uh, a very relaxing way as well. I, I, I really enjoy it. I know a lot of people do. I'm having to Google proprioceptive. <laughs> <laughs> um, relating to stimuli that are produced and perceived with an organism, especially those connected with the position and movement of the body. All right, there we go. Um, <laughs> so, so does the end product look messier than knitting with needles? I don't think so. So the trick is, and 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 I will say you can see a wide range of quality of arm knitting, for example, or finger knitting online. But the trick is, especially with arm knitting, is to use appropriate yarn um, gauge or like the mass or weight of yarn for your needles. So if you imagine you're using your arms as your needles, that's a pretty big needle. You need to bulk up that yarn in order to fit that needle. And when you do that, you basically get traditional knitting on a massive scale and it looks like a traditional knit fabric so it looks full and rich just like your sweater would but it's it's just this complete you know amazing completely amazing shift in scale Uh, i think it's great i understand that you don't always knit with yarn but like recycled materials sometimes what are examples of that Well, you can, I mean, basically anything you can string together, you can knit. So you can use rope, you can use twine. I mean, you could string together um, grocery bags and knit with those. You know, there are just so many different things uh, you could use. How do those turn out? Well, I love, I love rope and jute and, um, you know, other fibers besides yarn. Um, I have not done a huge project with grocery bags, but maybe that's on the list. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do useless items just pile up in your home or do you, do you find that you're able to create kind of utilitarian um, crafts that, I don't know, you bestow upon friends or something? (laughs) Well, I think it makes a lot of very useful things. And that's the thing um, that was so neat to transform that finger knitting into something you could use. You can weave the finger knitting into a beautiful rug. I have one in my bathroom. I've got a rope rug, you know, at the back door. We've got poofs in the living room. And um, my son has a big bag or big knit pillow he loves to wrestle with you know there are all sorts of things that you can use it for and then they make great gifts so i um you can give scarves and cowls and beautiful pillows and you know to your friends and they're usable beautiful items i mean knitting is obviously pretty mobile um i can think of my mom who knitted in all kinds of places but it seems that finger and arm knitting would be even more uh, you know um more mobile you could bring it with you well, certainly, you know, you don't run the risk of having uh, a, a battle over needles, for example, on the airplane yeah. or jury duty or that sort of thing. <laughs> so that's great. Finger knitting um, fits great in your bag, and it's just a skein of yarn, and you can create with that, and that's easy. The, the trick with arm knitting is it's a lot of yarn, 
So uh. you have to, you know, it would be a little selective in terms of where you go. But I will say one of my favorite places to arm net used to be on the uh, sidelines of my soccer, uh, of a soccer game, because you basically made a blanket for your lap as you sat there knitting. It was pretty nice. It is. <laughs> Anne Wheel, she talked to us about Knitting Without Needles. That's the title of her new book, A Stylish Introduction, she says, to Finger and Arm Knitting. She is also the founder of FlaxandTwine.com. We've just confirmed from our Capitol reporter that Governor Hickenlooper will name an executive at Kaiser Permanente to serve as his lieutenant governor. She is Donna Lynn and must still be confirmed by the legislature. The current Lieutenant Governor Joe Garcia is stepping down this summer to be president of the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education. It's a story CPR News will follow throughout the day. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Public Radio.